morning, everybody. My name is Greg Fondell, and it's a pleasure to worship with you today and also a privilege to speak to you today. What possessed a military genius like Napoleon to think that the harsh Russian winter would be no match for his troops? In spite of being well-trained and well-equipped, there was no historical evidence to support such a tactic. What caused the leading scientists and thinkers of Galileo's time to ignore the proof that they could see right with their own eyes and instead to write him off as a heretic and a quack? Why would a brilliant leadership team like that of IBM bet the farm on mainframe computers and practically give away the PC design and its operating system to a young programmer named Bill Gates? These and many other decisions were made by people way smarter than me. But in hindsight, they look pretty foolish. What happened? In each case, otherwise intelligent people misinterpreted the facts. They made incorrect assumptions. They relied on faulty information with disastrous consequences. History is filled with examples of smart people who acted upon goofy assumptions and paid a high price for it. We as Christ followers are not immune to such foolishness. In the past, I've met some very sincere, very bright folks who have made life-altering decisions based on what they perceived as biblical principles, only to discover that what they believed was what they believed was true actually didn't come from the Bible at all. They were victims of spiritual urban legends. Beliefs that are passed on as facts. Sources are often friends, Sunday school class, a Bible study, a blog post, a book, even a sermon. And because they sound plausible and come from a reputable source, Spiritual urban legends are often accepted without question and quickly disseminated to others. They tend to take on a life of their own and they become almost impossible to refute because everyone has accepted that they're true. The consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly disastrous. If people choose to picture Jesus as a blondish, blue-eyed, Western European-looking guy who walked from town to town in an old bathrobe saying profound things in a soothing voice. Might not be accurate, but it probably won't destroy their faith. But far too often, the certain consequences are spiritually devastating. Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes God off for failing to keep a promise that he never made. Or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to be a leap onto thin ice. These aren't harmless misunderstandings. They're spiritually dangerous errors that can cause heartache and confusion to all who trust in them. Today we're going to consider one of these spiritual urban legends that is commonly passed among other Christians. Everything happens for a reason. 
Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. My friends, Mike and Cheryl, lost their son, Seth, about six weeks ago to death by suicide. We've been meeting regularly to talk through their grief and their trauma. And they've been really grateful for the kindness that has been shown to them by extended family and neighbors and co-workers. They've also received a lot of care and support from their church. But they've confessed that on more than a few occasions, well-intentioned encouragement has almost undone them. Instead of being comforting, these assurances were actually quite painful. The words varied, but the message was still the same. That Seth's suicide was somehow a blessing in disguise. It was all part of God's great plan for their lives. Repeatedly, they've been told by Christian friends, God must be up to something wonderful. God doesn't make any mistakes. Won't it be great to see how God works through this? Isn't it good to know that everything happens for a reason? Now, in one sense, these people are absolutely right. No matter what happens, God is sovereign. God is in control. He's the ruler of the universe, and he's good. But that doesn't mean that everything that happens is something that he wants to happen. It certainly doesn't mean that everything he allows is good. God didn't plan for Seth to take his life. There is nothing wonderful about what these parents will endure, possibly for the rest of their lives. God didn't create a world full of pain and heartache so that people would have more growth opportunities. God does not have a good reason for every random illness, injury, trial, tragedy, shame, or sorrow that we experience. God didn't cause Lucifer to rebel, or Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, or David to sleep with Bathsheba. He did not force Cain to kill Abel, or inspire the building of the Tower of Babel, or agitate the crowd to cry out for Barabbas. He didn't coerce the Roman soldiers into killing Jesus. Those who made those terrible choices bear full responsibility for their actions. God is not to blame. Like most spiritual urban legends, the idea that God causes everything that happens comes from a combination of wishful thinking and a twisted interpretation of Scripture. In this case, one verse in particular is often the source. No verse gets misquoted more than this one does when it comes to trying to make sense out of troubles and terrors. You'll find it plastered on greeting cards and coffee mugs and posters and bumper stickers and all kinds of Jesus junk. It sounds good, sells well, but Romans 8.28 doesn't say or mean what most people think it does. 
Much of the confusion can be traced to the way the verse was translated into the Shakespearean English of the King James Version of the Bible. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, at first glance, that seems to imply that everything happens according to God's great plan, that life is like a giant jigsaw puzzle that will make sense once all the pieces are in place, that given enough time, everything that happens will prove to have been good and necessary. But that's an unfortunate translation. A more accurate rendering of Romans 8.28 in modern English reads like this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice the difference. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It says that God is at work in all things. God can and will accomplish his good purposes no matter what. Even the enemy's best shot can't puncture God's ultimate plan. But that's a far cry from saying that everything that happens is a blessing in disguise. Now take note of something else about this verse. It's not a promise for everyone. It's not even a promise for every Christian. It's a promise for a specific kind of person. This verse is for someone who, number one, loves God, and number two, has been called according to his purpose. So who is that? According to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, those who love God are those who obey his commands. Those who are called according to his purpose are those who have become followers of Jesus. And that leaves a lot of people out. It leaves out the coworker in the cubicle next to yours who has no interest in spiritual things. She just found out that her youngest child has autism. And God loves her and he loves her child and he has a preferred future for them when they turn to Jesus. But Romans 8.28 has nothing to say to this mother in this moment of heartache. It also leaves out the nice guy that lives next door, the one that you've been witnessing to. He just lost his job three weeks before his wedding. Now, assuring him that God has something better in mind may make both of you feel better. But it's wishful thinking. God makes no promises like that to those who aren't following Christ, no matter how nice they are. And it even leaves out some Christians. If we live with disobedience in some area of our lives, there's no blanket promise that God will step in and fix the mess that our defiance creates. I once met with the parents of a pregnant teenager who came in to figure out how best to handle that situation. And at one point they said, we're not sure why God let this happen. And I didn't say anything right then, but I thought unless 
This is another virgin birth. God probably didn't have much to do with it. (laughs) Unfortunately, these parents were sure that God allows only good things to come into their lives. Now, they knew that their daughter shouldn't have been sleeping with her boyfriend. And she knew that too. But they believed that God must have something good up his sleeve. Now, surely this child would not experience the baby's birth as a painful reminder of her sin. That's what they believed. I hoped they were right. But I couldn't give them that sweeping assurance. The consequences of sin can be brutal, even in the presence of God's grace. I want you to consider David and Bathsheba. Sure, David was forgiven for committing adultery and having Uriah murdered. Sure, he was used by God to write psalms about God's mercy and love, even following that downfall. Sure, God brought some good out of their union, especially in this amazing son named Solomon. But all in all, it would have been far better if David had not peeped at Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Their first son died in infancy. David spent the rest of his life at war. His family was a dysfunctional mess. And none of this qualifies as God's wonderful plan for his life. The promise of Romans 8.28 is not that even our disobedience and defiance is going to turn out well. It's that no matter how bad things may be, God's ultimate and eternal purpose won't be thwarted. Those who assume that everything that happens has God's fingerprints all over it fail to distinguish between what God allows and what God causes, what God permits and what God prefers. The Bible makes it clear that there are a number of scenarios where the dark trials of our lives have nothing to do with God's wonderful plan for our lives. Sometimes the hardships that we face are the results of self-inflicted wounds, our own sinful choices. They're not God's doing. They're our own doing. I know of a Christian couple that lost their home to foreclosure. They took out a loan that they couldn't afford, and their broker told them to pay, that to just, they just needed to pad their income. He said, everybody does it, and so they did. And they got their loan by lying. And then the economy tumbled, and a friend told them not to worry. They were in God's hands, and he wouldn't let them down. And that was cold comfort. They had lied, and it had caught them. God had something better in mind, but it wasn't a nicer house. It was truthfulness, even when it was inconvenient. Having failed to live up to God's plan A, they were forced to live with the consequences of God's plan B. Sometimes bad things happen when we live in a fallen world. 
We are all heirs of Adam's sin. It's universal. It's unavoidable. It's not a coincidence that the first story in the Bible after the fall of Adam is about a bad guy killing a good guy. That's what happens in a world ruined by sin. Bad people do, good, do bad things and good people get hurt. We also contend with the curse upon the planet. You follow the news for a few days and you'll see plenty of examples of creation groaning for its redemption from hurricanes and heat waves and tornadoes and tremors. And we all know that there are daily frustrations and illnesses and irritations and accidents and catastrophes that come unbidden to remind us that this world is not the paradise that God had in mind. Almost a year ago, a truck driver went through a stoplight and in a moment, a beloved wife and a devoted mother and a cherished friend was taken from Wes and Ruthie and Henry, from loved ones and friends, from this congregation. Among all those who have cried over Elena, God was the first. It was not his plan. He is not to blame. Any attempt to downplay the impact of the fall or the assumption that Christians live in some magic bubble of protection fails to square with the testimony of Scripture. Jesus said to his closest followers, in this world you will have trouble. And when it comes to the consequences of the fall, we aren't offered immunity, but we are offered eternity. There's another reason that bad stuff happens. Sometimes we make foolish decisions. Not sinful decisions, just dumb ones. Our choices matter. Picking the wrong stock can wipe out your portfolio. Picking the wrong coworker can derail your business. Picking the wrong spouse can lead to untold unrest. Picking your nose can ruin your social status. <laughs> Ludicrous to blame God or to expect him to fix every idiotic decision that I make. God doesn't promise to keep me from making bad choices or to fix whatever I break. However, he does promise to continue working for my eternal good, no matter how many dim-witted decisions I make along the way. The belief that God is the direct cause of everything that happens is not only untrue, but it has the potential to be spiritually harmful. In many cases, pinning everything on God can lead to unjustified anger toward him. Most of us know people who want nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity because of a great tragedy or injustice that they blame on God. When we say that he is the direct cause of everything that happens, we hand the enemy 
powerful ammunition that he is going to use to slander God's reputation. Satan's argument goes like this. If God is responsible for your mess, he's obviously not very good or he's not very powerful. Why waste your time trusting a God like that? Another consequence of believing that a God-ordained reason lies behind everything that happens is a glossing over of sin. There's not much reason to take sin seriously if everything turns out fine in the end. I was told once that an extramarital affair was part of God's plan because the infidelity resulted in a happy marriage. Someone explained to me that God must have orchestrated a bitter church split because it led to a dynamic ministry. It was suggested to me that God must have caused a thief to commit a robbery and to be subsequently convicted for it because the thief became a believer in prison. But God never approved of those sins. He did not cause them, and he didn't use them. He overcame them, because that's what grace does. The belief that God causes everything that happens, when taken to an extreme, can lead to an epidemic of irresponsibility. If God guarantees that everything works for the good, no matter what, well then just roll the dice. God will fix it because he has to, right? He promised that he would. Some of this kind of thinking produces ridiculous risk-taking that's generously labeled as steps of faith. Yet most of these so-called steps of faith, whether it was gambling with their kids' college funds, ditching a career to move to Japan, or refusing medical treatment, had nothing to do with following God's leading. He hadn't told them specifically to do any of these things. But they ignored both the warnings of Scripture and the advice of prudent friends and took the risk, confident that if things went bust, God would bail them out. And sadly, when he didn't, they railed against God for not taking care of them. There's another downside to believing that God causes everything that happens. It produces unrealistic expectations and misplaced hopes among those who face suffering and struggles. The life of a vibrant, talented 45-year-old woman named Bonnie was changed in just minutes by an incapacitating stroke. She was paralyzed on her right side. She was also left with cognitive limitations, and unintelligible speech. For a time, her husband, Dan, and their family trusted that God must have a reason for this devastation, that somehow it would prove to be a good thing in the long run. But two years after Bonnie's stroke, I sat with Dan as he cried with gut-wrenching sobs. I can't take it anymore. When will he fix this? Why doesn't he answer our prayers? They were banking on a miracle that they would probably never see. 
And with each passing day, they felt less assurance about what had been their certain hope of an eternal inheritance. Scripture is full of stories where God takes something awful and uses it to produce something glorious. That is what grace does. The ultimate example of this is the crucifixion of Christ. Another can be found in the account of the misfortune suffered by Joseph and his subsequent rise to a place of authority in Egypt. Now, God was at work. Behind the scenes, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, when he was falsely accused of rape, when he was imprisoned and forgotten before being summoned to interpret Pharaoh's dream. When Joseph's brothers came to ask him for mercy, he responded, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, some have seen Joseph's testimony as proof that whatever happens to us, it's always part of God's plan to bring about something better. But notice that Joseph didn't call his brother's sinful acts good or necessary. He never said that everything happens for a reason. In hindsight, he declared that God had been at work despite his brother's evil intentions. But there is no indication through the story of Joseph that the faith and integrity with which Joseph endured injustices was based on the belief that God was up to something special. He never had any clue about that. But he knew that righteousness was the path to take. And one day he would be rewarded either in this life or in eternity. Every trial or hardship that we experience calls for the same response, obedience. Obedience tells the truth even when it's painful. It refuses to return evil for evil when, even when vengeance is within reach. It's thankful even on days when there's less to be thankful for. It walks with integrity even when no one else does. It does the right thing, even when the outcome is difficult. Sometimes, as in the case of Joseph, obedience will be rewarded in this life. Sometimes it will be rewarded in the next. Only time will tell. And that leaves us with a final question. If God doesn't approve of everything that happens, why doesn't he step in and take charge? If God is good, how can he abide so much that is bad? If God is powerful, why doesn't he set things right? Why doesn't he bring an end to evil and be done with it? Why does he allow Satan, a defeated enemy, to operate as if he is the ruler of this world? The answer is simply that God chooses to wait because for every day he delays more of his former enemies become his friends and choose to join his family. Theologians have long argued over the logistics and the details of Christ's return. There are premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists. 
I like to think of myself as a pan-millennialist. I believe that it's all going to pan out the way God wants it to. (laughs) But all sides agree that when God finishes his work, evil will be vanquished, Satan will be crushed, and sadly, those who have ignored God or chosen the path of of rebellion will be out of time. There will be no more opportunities for them to be saved. So do you really want Jesus to come back and destroy sin and evil today? I still have many loved ones and friends who don't know Christ. Some are very close. Some are on the fence. And some are nowhere near. But every day Jesus delays his return. He gives these that I care about another opportunity to know him as their Savior and Lord. I want him to come back, but I'd rather he wait until more of the people I love have stepped over the line. So far, it seems like he feels the same way. God hasn't promised that everything will always work out in this life. But he has promised that no matter what happens, he will never leave us or forsake us. He also has promised that despite everything that the enemy of our souls might throw at us, that God's good and eternal purposes can never be outdone. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will ever separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let it be so. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our Savior and our Shepherd. How we need you. How we depend upon you. Your presence transforms even our darkest moments. With you beside us, we need not be afraid. We face trials ahead in full confidence that nothing can ever separate us from your love. 
Jesus, fill us with courage and faith and hope so that in our time of testing, we may not fall away. In your blessed name we pray. Amen.